Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, this time I'm not lying. The brilliant Ann Applebaum of the Atlantic Monthly is with me from Poland, where she makes her home. And I could not have a better human being to walk us through where the war in Ukraine stands and where it is going and why it's going to be a long war. Because Anne explains what this is, which she says is genocide, which surprised me. I had always thought of genocide as Hitler and the Jews and some other instances uh, throughout history where a people are targeted, but Anne says that's what this is, that Putin wants to destroy Ukraine and doesn't see it as a real country and wants to wipe it off the map. And she points to what the Russians have done when they have occupied a piece of territory in Ukraine, which is round up and torture and kill people who speak Ukrainian and, and ship Ukrainian children to Russia and make them Russian. And this is why Ukraine will fight this war to the end, unless the toll in Russia just becomes intolerable and Putin is forced to the table. But even then, would the Ukrainians just see that as a pause before he can regroup and start up again? So there aren't a lot of laughs in this one, actually a few, but I got to say, Anne is amazing and you have to listen to this one. That's why I'm going to make this a relatively a short monologue to get right to Anne. But just one last thing about Anne and this episode. Among other things, Anne is an expert on, uh, besides global politics, on fake news. And we go into the history of fake news. And of course, there's always been propaganda and Stalin and Hitler and Father Coughlin, all using the radio, etc. But Anne talks us through how Putin played a big role in creating fake news as we know it today. When he was in the KGB in the early 80s, they created an international rumor that the CIA had invented AIDS. I think I remember that. And they, they planted it first in an Indian newspaper and then an Italian newspaper and in a lot of different places all over the world. And they created some fake scientists who gave a fake press conference and spread the rumor in Malaysia and in Africa. And uh, this, of course, was uh, all pre-internet. Now, of course, you spread fake news instantaneously all over the world on the internet through social media and the dark web and with thousands and thousands and thousands of bots. Hey, so this is a dark one, but I have to say, Anne, who joins me here for the second time, instantly joins the pantheon of the greatest Al Franken podcast guests of all time, along with Heather McGee, Dahlia Lithwick, Frank Four, and Norm Ornstein, although I might have to drop Norm uh, to make room for Anne, because this is not just a great one. It may be the best single podcast I have ever done. Oh, and uh, Hunter... Biden got indicted, uh, which is bad for Joe Biden, uh, because it reminds people that he has a 53-year-old son. Anyway, listen to this one with the amazing Anne Applebaum. It is a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts 
to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Anne writes for the Atlantic Monthly, and I'm always looking for your stuff, and I missed your, your piece on Elon Musk somehow. Um, now, he, of course, has these uh, the satellites, the Starlink system, and was providing uh, Ukraine with a lot of help in the war, right? Yeah, more than that. You know, what happened was is that at the very beginning of the war, the Russians essentially took out the Ukrainian internet. And there was an emergency. People said, what can we do? And someone said, let's use Starlink. It's, it's relatively cheap. You can do it fast. You can set it up with these little, you have these little um, pods that you can distribute to people and everyone can start using them. And everyone distributed Starlink. Starlink became the Ukrainian internet. And nobody really thought about what, therefore, was the role of Elon Musk, who is the private owner of this right. system and who can make decisions about it. And normally, of course, when you know the Defense Department buys a weapon or a system or something, there's a kind of Chinese wall between the producer and them. And so they decide how it's being used. But this was, right. uh, this was an emergency, and therefore, he had some say over it. If, if you make a missile for the U.S., you don't. Each time they use it, they have to prove it. This, this is, uh, if the U.S. buys one, one, this is different. This is, he owns this thing, right? He owns the system. He owns the satellites. And he was, you know, initially, I think it's now, the system has now changed. He was therefore able to make some decisions about it. And infamously, and actually this story has been known for a while, in September of 2022, the Ukrainians had put together a fleet of sea drones, which at that time nobody knew about. I've just been to see them, which I can tell you about it. They're very, very cool. What are sea drones? Ah, sea drones. Uh, there are different kinds. The ones that I saw are little mini boats. They look like little black boats. I mean, oh, okay. funny enough. Hence, S-E-A. Sea, yes. Sea as in the water. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I got Sea is in the water. These are water uh -huh. drones. There are also some okay. little, there are submarine drones too, but these are actually Sheesh. unmanned boats or something. And they're little black boats. They're about the size of like a paddle boat, um, but they have explosives. Um, and they also have very, very sophisticated communications equipment attached to them. So you can guide them, you can navigate them, you can, they have little cameras, you can see where they're going. They were custom designed by Ukrainian engineers who began working on them after the war broke out. And the first time they were tried to use them was in September 2022. And they aimed them at the port of Sebastopol, which is, it's part of Crimea, and it's where Russia keeps right. its Black Sea fleet. On the way to Crimea, suddenly the satellite connection stopped working. And there was a kind of panicky moment where the Ukrainians and some people, not in Ukraine, actually, some Americans started calling up Musk and saying, could you please turn it on fast? You know, they're in the middle of an operation. And Musk refused. And there's a, there's a discrepancy about whether he actually turned it off or whether it hadn't been turned on. And there are people who have different versions of that, actually. But in any case, it didn't happen. The operation was aborted. And some of the drones 
made it back home, actually. Um, some didn't. Uh, but they, 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 you know, but th- this was the first time that Musk actually interfered in a Ukrainian operation. So, and that was over a year. That was, that was a year over ago. A year ago. The, the, he, it was then noticed a few other times on the battlefield in eastern Ukraine that sometimes the soldiers would find their links dropped out. Um, and it seems that Musk had kind of limited Starlink to the, the front line rather than to the borders of Ukraine. And so when they were in retaking territory, they would run into problems. Um, essentially what happened is this was fixed and the Defense Department gave them different communication system. And now I think Starlink itself is partly been given over to the U.S., to the Pentagon as well. And so this problem is gone. But in any case, the punchline, and this is the thing I didn't know until last weekend. I was in Kiev last weekend. And I have a friend who is knows is in, involved in the drone production business uh, who took me to see the sea drones and to talk to the people who make them. And I didn't know, you know, exactly who I would be meeting and so on. In fact, I, you know, I'm, I can't say their names and, or anything about them. But th- they said to me, well, we were, you know, one of them said, well, actually, I was involved in that operation that Musk aborted. Mm-hmm. And we ran it again in October, uh, a month later, and we hit several ships. Um, so in other words, Musk had stopped the operation on the grounds that I suppose this is we we should have said as well. He stopped it on the grounds that it would cause World War III because he had he had just spoken to the Russian ambassador. He claimed later on that he'd spoken to Putin. Then he denied that he'd spoken to Putin. I don't know who he spoke to, but he spoke to some Russians, um, and they said this is a very dangerous operation. If the Ukrainians hit, you know, Crimea, then we will nuke them essentially. However. This isn't true. That's not what happened because they did hit. The they story. did hit him and he didn't launch. Did and hit, he's been threatening no- this from the beginning, yeah. pretty much the beginning of the war. And that has that slowed our our providing sophisticated equipment to uh, Ukraine throughout the war. And he every time he made that threat, we got nervous and didn't provide sophisticated weapons that we could have at that time. But. You know, yeah, that's exactly, you know, but actually it goes back farther than that. Um, so in 2014, when the Russians invaded Crimea the first time, mm-hmm. um, the Ukrainians were told, don't fight back. They were in a, it was a chaotic moment and there had just been, the president had just escaped the country and it was complicated for a lot of reasons, right. but they didn't fight in Crimea. The result of that was that after they occupied Crimea, the Russians invaded Eastern Ukraine. And then the Ukrainians did fight back and the Russians took some territory, but, but they stopped. The point being that when you fight back, they that, stop. That's the period when we were, uh, when, when uh, Trump uh, was withholding some military stuff to try to get Zelensky to say something about uh, yeah. release stuff. About yeah, that was, that, that was a bit later. But, but in between oh, 20, okay. 2014 and 2022, we gave them very little. And as you say... At one point, the Congress passed a resolution saying we should give them some weapons, and Trump tried to blackmail Zelensky, saying, "I'll give you the weapons if you give me some made-up stuff about Joe Biden." That was the first impeachment. Yes, was- yes. So all this <laughs> is all connected. Um, but but the point is, they they have you know we have been we speaking broadly. I mean, not just Musk, but many people have been intimidated by. This fear, nuclear fear, which the Russians play up all the time, they show nuclear explosions on television. They talk about it all the time. They warn about it all the time. And the idea is to get us not to help Ukraine. And, but the lesson that we've learned over the last several years, and particularly over the last 18 months, is that when we do push back, when the Ukrainians do fight back, the Russians step back. And so what was the result of them hitting the Black Sea port in October 2022, the result was that the ships all stayed in the port for the next month because they were scared of the drones. So they were not able to go out. They were not able to launch missiles at Ukraine, you know, at Ukrainian cities. The drones have been an effective deterrent of the Russians. Every time we, you know, we stand up to the Russians, the Ukrainians stand up to the Russians, rather, there is a deterrent effect and they step back. So Musk was, he fell for this kind of Russian scare tactics and he intervened in an operation that he had no business intervening in. It turned out that was a mistake. So the, 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 there are sort of several things going on here. One is what right does Musk have to make these decisions? 
Um, and the second one is, didn't we all make a mistake by believing this propaganda and being afraid? And now it's we don't believe it because he's cried wolf too many times. He's cried wolf a lot of times. I mean, you know, there is some possibility that he will use nuclear weapons. Putin will. And that would be a like a tactical nuke. But if he does that, then he's a worldwide pariah. Right. I think. So there are a lot of which I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about what he's doing in terms of building alliances with countries that that aren't the West, like, you know, obviously China and uh, North Korea, but also like India and Brazil and other countries like that, like, like how he's turned to doing that and fighting the West in that way. Yes, that is part of his tactic. So he is trying to create a kind of alternative alliance of autocracies or countries that don't identify with, with the West or with the US. I would say it's been a mixed success. So it's true that he now he, he sells his oil to India and to China. It's less clear that he's getting weapons from any of them. It, it, certainly the Indians don't seem to be giving him any weapons. It's like Iran and North Korea. Iran and North ones. Korea. And even yeah. China officially, is some, there's an argument about whether some Chinese components are getting to him, you know, but mm-hmm. it doesn't look like the Chinese are helping him in some massive way either. The Chinese don't seem to like the war. And in fact, just to the previous point, the Chinese have said out loud several times this must not become a nuclear conflict. And they seem to be not keen on that at all. Um, and that's one of the big pressures on Putin, other than the fact that we would respond somehow, which we've also said to him. I would think everyone in the world would think that because once that happens, we don't know what happens next. And also any nuke will put radioactivity into the into the atmosphere world. And Yes, and, and, oh, and the wind blows to the east in that part of the world and you know, the radioactivity will spread into Russia. So there, there, there are significant numbers of reasons why it would not make sense for him to do it. But yes, he is, he is absolutely uh, aggressively seeking to create this alternative alliance. And I would say uh, definitely Iran and North Korea are in. I suppose Venezuela is in and Cuba is in. To what extent you said that China might be sending some parts or st- stuff uh, that he can... To, to what extent has... Putin been able to successfully start rebuilding missiles and stuff like that because of getting components and things like that from the rest of, from those countries. So I'm not sure that we know um, with any precision, but it seems he's been able to do some of that, but not not in large quantities. And I mean, there was somebody. It was in in Kiev last weekend. Somebody told me that they had re, they had. Um, over the summer, there was a missile that fell somewhere in Ukraine that they, you know, they took apart and identified, and they realized it had been made very recently. But that also implied that they're making stuff and rushing it to the front line um, because they, you know, they've run out of stuff. Um, so it's not like they have these huge stockpiles anymore, um, and it's not clear that they're able to replace, you know, what they used to have very quickly. Well, this goes to my big question is, how has the counteroffensive gone? And where are we in the war? The counteroffensive, you know, has gone slower than many had hoped. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons was that it took longer than expected for the Ukrainians to get all the weapons they were promised. So again, we had this problem of things being slow. You know, the US and Germany who had Germany had a lot of tanks that it could have given to Ukraine and it made a very late sure. decision to donate. And them. Poland was uh, in, in the front of getting Pol- Poland stuff. got stuff to Ukraine very fast. I mean, a, a, some of it was old Soviet stuff and the Poles are now buying weapons like crazy. So Poland had limited, you know, the actually it was the Germans who had these large numbers of modern tanks. And they had given Poland some of them and Poland said, we'll give them to Ukraine. There's something like that. Yes. Now, now, for for my audience, just uh, the, uh, for geography, Poland has a big, long border, and uh, sort of the whole of southeast Poland uh, borders Ukraine. So, yep. the Poles are um, in on this whole hog, right? I mean, the po- the Poles perceive this as you know, the, you know, the conflict because if if Putin were had won in Ukraine the way he expected to win and had taken it over quickly and so on. They reckon they would have been next. So there's that, you know, there's that aspect of it. 
Um, there was also a thing that happened here in Poland, you know, the, with the first couple of days after the war broke out, there was a kind of national shudder, you know, because it, the, even the photographs looked like September 1939, which is when Poland was simultaneously invaded by Germany and the Soviet Union. And even the pictures, you know, of the women at the train stations looked like pictures that were familiar to people. So there was a this huge public reaction saying we have to do something. People drove their cars to the border to pick up refugees. You know, everyone I know had refugees. How many refugees are uh, in from Ukrainian refugees are in Poland right now? So quite a lot of them. There were a lot who came over the border. I mean, several million. I don't know that there's an accurate number now. A lot of them either moved on to other European countries or went back. Every time I've taken the train back to Ukraine, it's been full of people going home because you can actually now live in Western Ukraine or Kiev, and, and most of the time it's pretty normal. The number is probably something like a million, but they're also, you know, they're, it's not as if they're refugee camps. I mean, they work, you know, they work on construction sites or they work in shops. I mean, they're they're integrated into the economy, and I'm constantly meeting Ukrainians. I mean, they're driving taxis or they're running small businesses. So there's there are a lot of them are part of the economy now rather than a some kind of group that stands out. There is a little bit of resentment of them. There is a little bit of scratchiness now between Ukraine and Poland. There's some arguments about Ukrainian grain exports, which are cheaper than Polish grain, something like that. And there's we have a nationalist government here, which is trying to right. use some of that xenophobic energy to help them win an election campaign. So there's a bit of that around right now. But as I said, the overall, the policy remains very strongly pro-Ukraine, very um, strongly pro-NATO, very much. I mean, most of the US equipment comes through Poland. And there are, of course, US troops in Poland now for the first time ever in world history. So there is a, you know, the war is present here in a way it's not in the US. Part of the reason that the the counteroffensive was slower was the Russians had really dug in, right? And mine the were able to mine the places that because it was slower in developing and that gave them the time and tank traps and all that so, stuff. Yeah. So to give you an idea, I mean these are this is probably the largest minefield any army has ever tried to cross. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of mines over hundreds of square kilometers. It's this huge obstacle. And the Ukrainians tried in June to, you know, they they have this equipment, they have these new tanks and so on, and they, they made one attempt to cross it with a lot, with a big group, and they realized it couldn't be done. You know, you would cross it, you would demine some area, um, and by the time you got the tanks into place, you know, the Russians would have identified where it was the area that you'd cleared and they would hit you. So they started fighting in a different way. And they essentially, use, they fight with infantry. They have guys on foot who, sappers who demine territory, and then they have infantry come in and very slowly doing that, they have taken back some territory, both in the north, northern sort of northeast of the country and then some uh, some in the south. I mean, they they've made enough progress so that they're able now pretty much to hit almost every area of the occupied territories, and they continue destroying Russian logistics. I mean, every day something explodes, and there's a somebody sends around a YouTube video of it, and and they have moved forward. I mean, I think some had hoped for more progress by the end of the summer, but you know, it was not to be. Maybe maybe by the end of the year. Um, by the end of the fighting season, there'll be something more. And people, you know, there, there, there are different scenarios and people hope for more, but it does now look like it will take longer than it was expected. So, uh, well, that brings us to the subject of a long war. And what does that mean? I don't know how long it can go on. You know, the Russians are now, I was told, I was given a figure, something like 40% of their budget is now weapons and recruiting and um, pushing people to the front line. You know, they have real labor shortages now because of all the people who've been called up. How do they recruit when you say recruiting? Recruit is the wrong word. Sorry. Mobilize. <laughs> mobilize. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, mobilize. Because uh, I can imagine recruiting posters yeah. for this war. and uh, Yeah. Come, <laughs> you know, come get shot up in Bakhmut, you know, not very appealing, but um, I yeah. mean, they were fighting with convicts earlier in the war. So, well, of course, uh, Pogrosian, uh used them, and um, how's he? Do oh, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, that was a. Um, 
Well, you laugh, but, you know. But, well, it's, you know, it was, you know, I mean, how was he doing? A miscalculation, do you think, that Pogosian uh, made in terms of um, – I, I never understood when you're marching toward uh, Moscow and then you say, oh – and then, then you meet with them and go like, okay. <laughs> I mean, how how does uh, that work? In other words, what was going through Prigozhin's mind? So it's pre- it's pretty clear that he expected more support, and he wasn't going to get it, and he bailed. Uh, yes, he I mean, he, he, he did. Remember, he did walk into the city of Rostov and into the military headquarters there, which is the main military headquarters from which the war is being run. He walked in. He parked his armored cars outside. Right. No one stopped him. Uh, he announced that he was um, he was staging rebellion. Uh, mm. Putin went on television and said, "You know, this is like 1917, and I'm like Tsar Nicholas II, and you know, we mustn't let this civil war break out." Then he started marching to Moscow, where he also had very little opposition. You know, they just drove their, you know, their military vehicles down the highway. And they got quite close. I mean, they got within um, something like 100 miles of Moscow. The city of Moscow panicked. They started building barriers outside of the city and people were told to stay home and so on. He got pretty far, you know, without anybody uh, objecting to it. And my guess is that he, he expected something more, though. He thought some other military units would join him. He expected people to support him and they chickened out uh, or something. You know, and then he decided he didn't want to die on the outskirts of Moscow, even though there would have been a kind of aesthetic glory to doing that. He didn't want to do that. So he went back and Putin seemed to almost forgive him. And then people in Moscow started saying, well, how could you forgive him? He was, a, you know, he staged an insurrection. And then, you know, mysteriously, his plane crashed. It's, you know, and, and it's my guess is that the plane crash was organized as a kind of spectacular show by Putin to his critics, which are meant, which I think are many, in the security apparatus and in the elite and in the leadership to say, this is what's going to happen to you if you try the same thing. Um, because Putin is now very paranoid. He rarely um, lets anyone come near him. You know, he's surrounded by guards all the time. Um, and he's, he's aware that there is dissatisfaction with the war and the way it's going. Essentially, it's not a good sign if your most successful military commander stages an insurrection and then you have to murder him in a plane crash. It doesn't seem like that means that everything's going really well. Well, it seems very consistent with <laughs> their history, I mean, in a, in a way. But, but you're saying that's not good news for Putin. And so I, I, I want to kind of figure out the tension here in terms of how this war is going to go. And there's also where Trump fits in in this, because remember, we have an election coming up. And what happens if Trump wins? And uh, also, I think people wonder about support for the war, uh, both uh, in the United States and in Europe, because it seems like the pace of the counteroffensive or being slower than we thought sounds like a long war. There are several several questions there. I mean, one is that yes, I think you know, I think Putin is probably waiting for the US election to see who wins, and I think he is assuming as many assume that if Trump wins, he will withdraw support from Ukraine. He, you know, he was certainly no fan of NATO and no fan of um and no fan of Ukraine Trump. actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the past, there is a sometimes I I think does Trump really want to preside over some kind of big collapse. Maybe he doesn't, but that's another that we're too far away to speculate about what that would what that would look like. Uh, you know, I would say at the moment, I don't see any sign of the Western coalition breaking or of the Biden administration changing its mind. No, so, certainly the so Biden certainly until you know the until the end of 2024, there is I don't see there any any chance that they will stop. Supporting Ukraine. There's another aspect, though, that I think it's important to understand, which is that even if Biden and the leaders of France and Germany and Britain were to say tomorrow, okay, that's enough of this war. We don't want to do it anymore. Ukraine needs to make a deal. The difficulty is that they don't have anyone to make a deal with because the Russian goal officially is unchanged. You know, the Russians want to destroy all of Ukraine. You know, they don't think it's a real country. They think they're 
you know, it's, it's, it needs to be wiped off the map. They don't think it should exist. They want to destroy it. Um, and so the Ukrainians can't stop fighting because, you know, they can't do a deal with someone who, who has genocidal intentions towards the entire nation. Well, well, let me ask you about that, because when you say destroy Ukraine and genocidal, is it genocidal or is it he just wanted, he just was thought he could take over Ukraine and, you know, right away and then he, it would just be part of the Soviet Union again, essentially? Because genocide, there are so many Ukrainians being killed uh, civilians and, and soldiers, obviously, but there's a temptation to call it genocidal. But that seems like any war in history where someone conquers another country and there's a war and, and, and a lot of people end up getting killed, as opposed to Hitler, who identified a group of people and killed them, rounded them up and killed them. So I just... Just want to get the definition of genocidal. I, no, I understand. It's a good question. But the, the key is to look at what the Russians do when they occupy a piece of territory in Ukraine. You know, what what did they do when they took over Zaporizhia mm-hmm. or Kherson, you know, 18 months ago? Um, the first thing they did was they rounded up all of the local leaders. The um, you know, Then they began carrying out mass and random arrests. Um, it became clear pretty fast that what they wanted to do was Russify. So anybody who spoke Ukrainian, anybody who had a Ukrainian, the Ukrainians put these tattoos on their arms, you know, like sheaves of wheat or something. It's a kind of national, it was, a, it was almost a fashion. Anyone who had a Ukrainian tattoo would be arrested um, and would be disappeared, you know, maybe murdered. Um, anyone who who had anything to do with Ukrainian administration, as I said, spoke the language. You know, so the idea was to get rid of any vestiges of anything to do with Ukraine in these areas. The other thing they did was is they began kidnapping and deporting children. So mm. some some of these were children from you know orphanages and so on. Um, but the but the point of it, you know, and the the point was is they take the children to Russia and then they Russify them. They change their names and they give them to Russian families. In other words, the idea is that you want to disappear Ukraine. You want to destroy it as a nation. Whether that's going to require killing every single Ukrainian, you know, maybe, maybe not. But certainly the idea is to eliminate it as an identity or as a nation or as a language or as a remembered history um, or as a society. And the, the definition of genocide, actually, this is longer, you know, as it was originally conceived, was about eliminating a people, a nation, a group, you know, through different means. Um, Hitler did it in one way, but this, the idea is that Putin doesn't think it should exist. There shouldn't be any Ukrainians. It turns out, I I mean, I think his original assumption was there weren't really any Ukrainians. You know, there were sort of Zelensky and a few guys, and once we could kill them, and then everybody else would turn out to be Russian. And now they're discovering that there are a lot more Ukrainians than they thought. Actually, there's, you know, 30 million of them. And so they are becoming more systematic. They're killing more people. And the, the, um, the lethality of their occupation is much worse than, than it even was originally. You know, maybe there's a different word you could use that would be no, less evocative in the Second World War. But it's, a, but it's an attempt to eradicate them as a nation. And that's something that's a little bit more than just, it's not just a territorial war. You know, it's not just about who controls the city. Because if the Russians take over the city, you know, they kill everybody there and they torture people and they take the children away. So it's not like the Ukrainians can just say, oh, all right, you can have that city, you know, and it's okay to torture all those people and kill them. Well, that kind of motivates the Ukrainians, uh, uh, yes. you know, and uh, that helps me understand that because you wonder how long they can do this. And if that's the, you know, understanding that it's as long as, as long as they can breathe. The alternative is that they die under Russian occupation. So, you know, it's not like there's a really good choice. I mean, the, you know, the, the thing that could change the war and, you know, I've written this, you know, a couple of times, but the thing that could change the war is a political change in Russia, by which I don't necessarily mean regime change. 
But, you know, if the Russians decide that the war was a mistake, that it wasn't worth it, you know, it's draining them too much, that it, you know, I mean, something like the decision the French made about, the French ran this horrible war in Algeria for many years. Mm -hmm. Finally, in 1962, they said, we've had enough, we're coming home. And it was a very politically controversial decision. And there was like an attempted coup d'etat in Paris, and somebody tried to kill Charles de Gaulle. And, you know, it was a very emotive moment in French history. You know, but the war ended. And something like that has to happen in Moscow. And all I can say is that when it happens, we'll see it. So when if there is a change and the Russians say, okay, it's enough, we're leaving, or you know, it's enough, we're just keeping Crimea, then there is a moment when you could have a negotiation. The trouble with talking about negotiation right now is that we haven't got to that moment yet. So as I said, even if you know, Biden and Macron and Schultz, you know, all got together and said, the Ukrainians have to negotiate. There isn't anything they can negotiate now. There isn't anyone to negotiate with um, because Putin hasn't given up the idea of eradicating the country. And they still use this language on Russian television. I mean, even in the last few days, you know, Ukrainianism is a virus and it needs to be stepped out or the Ukrainians are parasites and they need to be eliminated or, you know, something, this kind of language that is, you know, it did used to be considered sort of genocidal language. You know, these aren't, they're not human, they're, they're rats or they're parasites or they're mice. Or, yeah, you know. that, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, you know, they're lice, you know. When they begin to stop talking like that and when they begin calculating rationally, then we can talk about the war ending. Well, that, that helps us understand, or my audience and me understand how the Ukrainians uh, aren't, at one point going like, well, uh, we can't win this right away, so let's negotiate. I mean, you need two sides to negotiate, yeah? I mean, there have to be two partners to negotiate. That's the main problem. I mean, the other issue is, you know, that you could have a ceasefire, which is what happened in 2014. You know, there was a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine and so on, and you could then police the ceasefire for a while. But, the, you know, if the, if the Russians use the ceasefire to rearm and rebuild their missiles, you know, and then to relaunch the war again in two years, then I don't think we've achieved very much. There's no hope for some kind of stasis like that. Because you you would have to have this change in Russia. There has to be a change of heart or a change of mind. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ann Applebaum of the Atlantic Monthly. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with Ann Applebaum of the Atlantic Monthly. Can I ask you, it's a little change of subject, but it's also, uh, I think, about Putin. But you've written about disinformation and fake news. What role has Putin played in that, in the history of that? And talk about fake news for, <laughs> for a bit, if you would. So um, he pl- he played a big role. He and um, actually Prigozhin played a role. Prigozhin has has had a ran something called the Internet Research Agency that was that was involved sure. in it. Um, you know, it might help to know that some of what we now recognize or we talk about as fake news isn't really new. So in the the KGB used to do this. They would. Right. There's a famous ver- story where very well known, very well studied, uh, of how they created an international rumor that the CIA had invented AIDS. And they planted it first, I think it was in an Indian newspaper, and then they planted it in an Italian newspaper, and they planted it in different places at different times to create the impression that lots of different people around the world were talking about this idea that the CIA had created AIDS. And this is in the, this is in the early 80s. 
And then they produce some kind of fake scientist who they who gave a press conference in East Germany about how the CIA had invented AIDS. Um, and they succeeded in creating this impression in lots of places, you know, in Malaysia and in, you know, in, in parts of Africa that the CIA had created AIDS. And this is how you create the impression of that a fake story is true. Fast forward to, you know, about a decade ago, the Russians worked out that you can still do this same way of creating echo chambers, you know, that create fake news, um, but you can do it in 10 minutes. So you don't have to, you know, the CIA creating AIDS was a long project, took a couple of years. You can now do that by seeding a story. You can do one version on, a, you know, on a Russian channel. You can do one on a, an, a, an Asian channel or an African channel. You can get one of your friends in Western Europe in, or in the United States to echo it. Um, and you can produce a sense that there's a, there's a story that's real simply by the large numbers of people repeating it. You can also add completely fake, you know, bots, you know, you can create a bot farms on, on Twitter, used to be able to do that, or, or on Facebook, so you can create fake Facebook pages, which also put out this story and, and try to reach audiences that way. And the, you know, and the echo effect is convinces people that it's true. And you can see them doing this all the time. There's a Ukrainian biolab story, you know, the Ukrainians have, you know, labs yeah. where they're, I mean, there, there, uh, there, there, there are versions of this that, that happened, you know, they, they still do it now all the time. Famously, they did a, a version of this in the 2016 election. And this is the one thing about the Trump-Russia connection that is not disputed. It was proven by Mueller and it was proven by the Senate committee. And it was been lots of evidence, you know, that the Russians did create fake sites and fake narratives in order to convince Americans to vote for Trump. And that is the Internet Research. And that was uh, there was a thing called the Internet Research Agency. It was run by Prigozhin, who, Pugosian, yeah. who's, who's you know who, who we were just talking about. It's funny as I were talking about it as, as history and so recent, and it, it played a role. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had this argument on this podcast, uh, but I, I do believe that played a role in that that election. Certainly, one piece of it. I mean, I think the leaks from the from the you know Democratic National Committee were very important, you know, that, and the way that they were then spun online to, you know, into various conspiracy theories, you know, that was a, I think that had a, that had an impact. Whether, you know, every Facebook post they did mattered or not, you know, they did a lot of anti-immigration groups, they created fake groups, they, they also created fake black activist groups that were anti-Clinton. So they weren't pro-Trump, but they were anti, they were about how terrible Hillary Clinton is or how racist she is or something like yeah, that. The, um, yeah, the uh, yeah. super and, predators. You know, and I, who knows? It's very hard to measure the effect of these kinds of things. But, you know, there was, there was, there was a lot of it. It was seeded all over the country. And it was certainly, it was certainly an attempt to shape our election. And this is very similar to what the Russians have done in other places. And in fact, I had written about it before 2016 as a thing they were doing in Europe. You know, I saw a version of it in Poland. I saw a version of it in uh, in Germany. I actually wrote a paper. Kind of, I was involved in a project, a sort of think tank project, that uh, we wrote a paper describing how this works. We took it around Washington, and it was either late 2015 or early 2016. I can't remember. And I have this funny memory of taking it to Capitol Hill and showing it to people. With, you know, they would say, "Well, boy, this is terrible. You know, it's really bad that." Slovakia is going to have this terrible problem, you know, but it's not really that important and it couldn't affect us. You know? And then in the US election, um, you know, in this summer in 2016, I started to see it. You know, I thought, oh, no, you know, you're joking. You're not going to do that here. And they did. It was exactly what they had done in other places. You know, they, they, they support far right candidates. They've supported some far left candidates. They support anybody who seems like a spoiler, you know, anybody anti-NATO, anybody anti the European Union, anybody who is perceived as anti-democratic. Those are the kinds of candidates they supported. And in Trump, they saw this kind of perfect problem creator and they supported him. And whether whether Trump knew about it, you know. I love, that's a great description. <laughs> Of Donald Trump, a perfect problem creator. You know, he was going to be a problem for American democracy. He was a problem for NATO. He's a problem for American alliances. He was a problem for, you know, I mean, uh, he was perfect for them. And it, to me, I'm sorry. Me, I like that so much. <laughs> I mean, the it's almost immaterial whether creator. Trump knew about it or not. I mean, he clearly guessed it at some, you know, but that's, that's you know, that they did it is, is not in question. Oh, I think uh, Stone knew it. and Sure. He was coordinating, right, with um, yeah, WikiLeaks and, and stuff. You know, and Paul, Paul Manafort was someone who'd been doing 
this well, yeah, in Ukraine. Them in yes. Ukraine. Yeah. yes, yes, that's exactly what he was doing. So let me just get this straight, because this is something you studied and uh, know, that really the KGB and Putin really sort of began, started this thing. Is that a true statement? I would say I would make it a little more nuanced. You know, some of what they no, do. No, no, no. It's got to be. You either. don't want to <laughs> no, be nuanced. No, no. Nuance it. Go nuance <laughs> it. That's, your, that's what you're doing. Some of what they were doing was using tactics already used by American PR companies. So I think what the Russians said, they, they, it was sort of the old. Wait a minute. Stuff. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. American PR. So, so meaning, meaning that not- they, they worked at, you know, they worked at how do you use Facebook to spread messages, right? So that was something that. But I'm talking about the early 80s. So I'm oh, the talking early about. Early 80s. Oh, no, no, in other no, no, words, no. I'm talking okay, no, about. No, they, no, absolutely. I thought you were talking about recently. No, no. They, they, no, the early 80s, they invented, they invented that idea, yes. So in other words, that, that's what I was getting that at. That way of doing it, they invented it. I mean, so everybody did propaganda and everybody did, you know, that kind of thing. But that particular format of seeking to create a story through a process of repetition and so on, um, I think they invented that, yes. And and did they deliberately go to, you know, Malaysia or wherever the, these other countries, they, they seeded these things in India or where they did not the United States, was it deliberate that they did that? Yes, I think because their aim at that time was, um, you know, cr- as now was was creating friends in you know in the non-Western world. That was one of their. But also the aim was if you if the story is coming from several different directions at once, then it has more credibility. So if you hear it in this paper and that paper and they seem to have nothing to do with each other, then that adds the credibility. And that, that's why I'm asking, is this sort of the genesis of fake news? Is it, is it fair to say <laughs> that, uh, I, yes, people have done propaganda forever? Yes. I mean, this, this particular way of doing it, I think they invented it, yes. Because to me, it's destroyed a lot um, and made our politics just almost impossible because remember Kellyanne Conway saying there are going to be alternative facts. And when she said that, I think a lot of Americans, me included, went, okay, that's just ridiculous. (laughs) And what we didn't understand was the rationale for that was, well, there's fake news. And fake news puts out fake facts. So we need alternative facts to counter the fake news and the fake facts. And therefore, a lot of Americans are going, I guess there just aren't any facts anymore. It's unbelievably damaging for democracy because democracy is really about, you know, you argue over an agreed upon set of issues, right? Um, you know, you have a discussion of what happened yesterday and, you know, and how we should react to it. If people don't agree about what happened yesterday, then you can't discuss it. You can't debate it. You can't pass a law about it. You can't fix it. And so it's been profoundly damaging that we no longer agree on the nature of reality, which I think is, I think it's fair to say we don't. Uh, and I and I and that 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 is something that would be you know from the from the Russian point of view positive that Americans don't agree on reality. I think is also pretty clear. So Putin can take a bit of uh, can take some pride in this. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give him all the credit. I mean, there were plenty of Americans working pretty hard to create this also. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say they I'm not telling saying they 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 achieved this amazing thing, but. But he can't go like, I started it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe in the, in the private, you know, one of his gold palaces, he does that. I don't know. Well, I'm not, yeah. But I, I just wanted to get that history from you because um, this is something, uh, among other things that you seem, uh, that you are an expert on. And I can't tell you, thank you for doing this. Our, 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 um, 
I think we've talked about the future of the war, which is we don't know, but uh, I, I think we understand now why Ukrainians uh, will just keep fighting because it's it is their survival, their very survival. So one 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 of them, somebody said to me uh, when I was there last week, and he said, you know, what if the Americans won't give us weapons? Then we're going to go and get weapons from you know South Korea or India, and if they won't give us weapons, we're going to you know pick up sticks and stones, is what he said. Yeah, we will uh, kill them with axe. Yes, that's not a good Ukrainian accent, was it? <laughs> Does that sound Ukrainian? Not <laughs> really. <know>. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what's a good Ukrainian name? What's a first name for a Ukrainian? Uh, I don't know. A male. Milo, Serhi, you know. Uh, Serhi. Yeah. We will hear his axe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we just kill him. Okay. So we don't need this Starlink to do that. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.